And I feel like that could be the same with menstrual cycle phases or this idea of like, oh, if you're, you know, if you trained hard on this day in your luteal phase, you're done, you know, like your your arm's going to fall off or something. It's going to go terribly. And, and, and yeah, I get really nervous with what sort of, are we really helping anyone? Are we really helping anyone with those, with that information, with those statements, rather than telling someone, hey, keep training. If you don't feel good, don't train. You know, like it's just like this super, like, I think it's, it's a cool opportunity for people to become much more introspective rather than looking outside for how should I feel? How should I train? How should I, you know, plan my life and stuff? And instead think, how do I feel? How does this make me feel? How did I feel after that? And use that information in your own personal data. Because all these people who are making, you know, claims or statements and stuff have literally no idea how you feel. Kia ora friends and welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. And do we have an episode for you? For new listeners to the podcast, my name is Jackson Burden and I am the host, a personal trainer, an online coach and a gym owner here in Auckland, New Zealand. I started this podcast back in early 2020 so I could bring together experts in their respective fields and have quality discussions with them in order to bring you evidence-based and rational information all around nutrition, all around health, all around training and make it a little bit more specific to people following a plant-predominant or plant-only diet. And today's episode is no different. Today, I've got Kimberly Santa Barbara. Kim is a PhD student here at AUT. She is a university lecturer, and she's a personal trainer. And while this episode is not detailing specific nutrition or training strategies for plant-only dieters, It is covering a topic of human health that has gained a lot of traction in recent years. The menstrual cycle is something that has been unnecessarily kept in the dark, leaving women confused about their biology experience and guys completely clueless. So let me just state from the outset, while I'm 100% all for the popularity of this discussion, and I agree that we all should seek more knowledge on this subject, Like most things, there is just no black and white absolutes when it comes to the effects and lived experiences of a woman's cycle. Kim is here to dive into the nuance with me and outline the key differences between the phases of a cycle, how these affect training outcomes, and what practical applications we can take from current research in this area and utilize in our own training. Before we dive in, if you have a male in your life, maybe a friend or a partner or a coach who you think could benefit from a little more knowledge in this area, please send this one over and ask them to have a listen. We all need to commit to better understanding of women's reproductive cycles. And lads, if you're listening, please keep an open mind as you go through this. Please commit to expanding your understanding and accept that while yes, ladies are very different to you. This does not mean that you don't have a right to knowing and understanding how the menstrual cycle affects their lives. And lastly, before we jump in, ladies, please don't keep men in the dark thinking they shouldn't know or they don't want to know or that it doesn't concern them. If they can be mature enough to move past their childhood thoughts around the menstrual cycle, they may just appreciate you including them on this journey with you. Right, with all that said, let's get into it. Grab a protein shake, grab your headphones. If you're out running right now, get your breathing rhythm sorted and let's do this. This is episode 35 with Kimberly Santa Barbara. So Kim, I guess to start here, I would actually love to hear a little bit more about you and what you specialize in and sort of how you got to where you are now because I think for the listeners it'll be really interesting but for myself as well because I don't actually know a lot about you so um, yeah let's start with that where where are you at right now what you're specializing in and uh, you know how you got to where you are 
Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's a lot of questions. Um, it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> feel free to take as long or as short as you like for this one. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm currently um, a PhD student at AUT, um, and I'm also a lecturer for university classes, and then I'm also a personal trainer. So I like to just do a lot of things all at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah I love that. <laughs> Um, let's see. Okay. And then I feel like I missed a few of your questions there. So, um, let's see what got me to this point. So I was, I did a master's program in kinesiology. Um, and after that I was like, I'm pretty much done with school now. That seems pretty solid. I'm good. (laughs) And, um, I immediately got pulled into lecturing, um, for a campus in Southern California. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. I did that for a little bit and I'm, I still work for that same campus, but online, which has been awesome. And I was kind of like, okay, I feel like I still want to know more. Like I want to know more (laughs) things about exercise and physiology and kind of, you know, in this field in general. And then same thing on the personal training side for me, I just felt like there was always something else that I needed to know for working with my clients or just kind of wanting to increase my background and stuff for working with the, um, the clients that I do work with. And so I was like, okay, okay, maybe I'll do the PhD thing. You know, maybe I'll do this. You know, I, I do a pretty good job between each degree of pushing it off for a while. So I waited like mm-hmm. three years between my bachelor's oh, well. and my master's and the exact same thing for my master's, to my PhD. I'm just like, no, 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 I'm not going to, I'm done. I'm not going to do more yeah. school. And then right at the three year mark, I'll be like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's about just, the time you need to, to have a bit of a rest from the books. Right. Exactly. And kind of like recontemplate what I'm doing in life and everything. So I really, really, really wanted to study something looking at sex differences. And particularly because for me, I just kind of always had this thing in my head of like, how can we help women to train more efficiently? And how can we help women to just be stronger? That was kind of like my biggest kind of like quest, you know, like, is there specific things that we can do for, you know, female based programming that really would make a difference? Like, is there something out there, you know, some, some magic pill, which there's not, (laughs) is there some sort of like amazing programming that if we get it just right, that we can really make this difference for, for women and their, and their training. And so Mm. I kind of went down this route, you know, I was like, okay, I want to do my PhD, something in this sort of realm and doing a little bit of searching and everything. I kind of came across like a menstrual cycle and menstrual cycle based programming and working with the menstrual cycle. I was like, oh, this is good. This is it. This is what I'm going to study. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do a PhD in or set. Um, and so I just kind of took off with that and was just looking around for, um, you know, opportunities to be able to pursue that. And I was lucky to find that at AUT. So that's that's how I yeah. got here. That's awesome. No, I, I, I really love it because I think when I came across you, I, I'd already been kind of looking into some of the differences in some of the sex differences between male and female, you know, when it comes to training and nutrition um, and reading a few different things and hearing some different viewpoints. Um, and then when I saw that you were actually, you know, doing research on this particular subject at AUT, I was like, okay, perfect. This is, this is someone I need to chat to because I, it comes up a lot with my clients and just general people um, that I chat with uh, as I think, the the demographic of you know people who are interested in, in in gaining muscle and strength starts to include a lot more females which is super exciting there's also you know a lot more questions around well do is does my training have to change does my nutrition have to change um is you know can i just follow a program that a a male has done the exact same thing and get the same response like and so there's this i guess this idea going around at the moment around um, you know, the fact that women shouldn't just be doing the same as men. So I guess I wanted to dive into that a little bit further. But before we do, Kim, I'd love to hear your own experiences with training. And I guess you 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 were obviously interested in in training before studying uh kinesiology. Is that is that what you're studying? Um <laughs> Yeah, kinesiology is what kinesiology, we call exercise yeah. uh, I don't know science what or what do we call sports science. Yeah, yeah. okay. I don't cool. know why we use that term in the states, but all the departments here yeah. are kinesiology departments, and then you specialize in exercise science or exercise oh, okay. physiology and I stuff like you. that. But yeah, yeah that's not an New Zealand term at all. 
Um, yeah, no, that's cool. So yeah, you're obviously already interested in, in training before going into those studies. So I'd love to hear about your own journey there and, you know, and then, and what that sort of, uh, has evolved to now in your own training and how you like to implement, um, strength training. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. So I was one of those athletes in high school and even into university where I was really, really not focused, <laughs> like extremely not so. So I would bounce around from sport to sport. And I was like, I was like, just okay enough at everything, like enough that people wanted me on their team, but I wasn't like the best, you know, yeah. I was kind of like, yeah, I'm all right. You know, I'm yeah. okay at everything. So I did like basketball and cross country, volleyball, rowing. I, wow. you know, did all, all the different sports, I did soccer, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, and never settled into anything. I continued with uh, rowing for a while, but even with that, I was like, I'm just not like, you know, it just wasn't something I was like, I need to stick with this. I've, again, always been good at doing a lot of different things at the same time, rather than really specializing in one thing, which is Mm -hmm. probably um, less ideal if you want to really excel in a sport. (laughs) You do need to just stick with that sport. So I did a lot of different things. And one thing I really found in high school, in my experience, was that I just felt like there was literally almost no implementation of strength training for the girls teams. It was just kind of like maybe, maybe once a month or something, you know, kind of, Oh, you know, here, go do this, uh, you know, one exercise because the guys are doing it and we don't have anything else for you to do because the weather's bad. You know, like it just wasn't (laughs) really, (laughs) there wasn't really any sort of strength training program. And I had got injured all the time. You know, I was constantly, you know, getting weird injuries, you know, I tore my ACL, you know, doing all sorts of my ankles and everything, you know, all sorts of things. And looking back at it, I just always am like, oh, if only I was doing more strength training, you know, I probably, I I maybe would have gotten injured less. I don't know. I maybe would have been a little bit better at the sport. I don't know. But at least it would have been productive. (laughs) I would have probably really gained a lot from it. So um, I always found that that was just really disappointing that at that time and in that age level and in the community I was in, that just wasn't something that we were doing that much. You know, it was like, I remember doing a lot of like uh, sit-ups and crunches and stuff. I don't know if that was any good, right. <laughs> but like, yeah. I don't remember ever, like I had never like picked up a barbell or anything like that until like, you know, college age, university. And so I got into strength training um, when I was an undergrad just because of the access to gym and it was just kind of like something to do. And I was like, sure, let's kind of try this. And that was very, very kind of preliminary, like those like body pump type classes, you know, just like with those little short barbells and stuff. But I was like, this is great. You know, like I can get so into this and stuff. And then I kind of fell into personal training just because I really liked exercise and I seemed to know a little bit more about it than some other people. So I was like, oh, therefore I'm super qualified. So I should go into personal training. And I did this like two month class at a community college and I was, I was so into it and stuff. Right. And so that was kind of how I learned about it. And then I got into CrossFit. I joined, you know, a little bit of that wave, not super intensely so, but a little bit so. And so that was kind of more my introduction into like strength training and, you know, working with actual weights and things mm. like that. So that was mm. pretty fun. I did that for a few years. And then, um, I've always continued running. Um, I love trail running. Um, right now, my workouts are just divided between doing some kind of like my strange version of varying strength training <laughs> with some sort of trail running at the same, at the, awesome. you know, just trying to train both at the same time with, mm-hmm. you know, limited success in both. But I enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. So that's what works. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that's a real like that's a that's something that a lot of us um it, within my circle at the moment are doing as well is is combining the running and the lifting and and although we know that it's not optimizing either one, it's like yeah. okay, we we want to do both and we enjoy both in this current season. Like we're working towards a marathon, and it's like you know we we can do our best programming wise, nutrition wise to to enhance both of those and just acknowledging that yeah I'm not going to be the best in either one but this is yep. this is what's enjoyable for me right now and um I think it's a great way to train so it sounds like you've had a a, a lot of history in different activities and sports and uh, I guess retrospectively looking back on that time at high school where you know there were there was like the the guys doing the weight training for their specific sports and there was this kind of like i guess 
you know, there's a, a, a there's a lot of underlying themes there of like patriarchy and sexism and things like this, right? But um, retrospectively, looking at that for yourself, do you think that was a bit of a spark for you to want to go further into what you're studying now to try and, I guess, improve the the uh, image of you know weight training and females for you know for you know, the, the whole I guess female population is that something that is you know an underlying theme for you or, or a passion for you is to see more ladies lifting and specifically even getting it into schools and and sports teams and things like that yeah I mean I think for sure I think definitely for me a huge um area that I really would like to work more into is definitely ways in which to get younger females involved in strength training, you know, at like the high school level and even a little earlier and stuff. Cause I think it is super important to be super useful. I would say, I, I, I kind of wish that I could say, you know, oh yes, this, this sparked this passion in me at that age or something like that. But now I'd say it's much more recent. I would say for me though, the thing that really got me was that like, so I, I was always like a decent runner and stuff, even at a pretty young ages. And I remember like, you know, in, I don't know, elementary school, middle school, being faster than most other guys. And then, you know, I'd be able to come in like second in the class or something at like the mile run. And then hitting wow. this point though, where all of a sudden it was like more and more guys were getting faster and less and less girls were. And I was like, wait a second, what is happening here? You know, I'm feeling really like, how did this happen? Why is this so unfair? You know? And, yeah, and I yeah. think that's where it kind of always, I just always had this thing in my mind of like, you know, is there something to help women kind of keep catching up, kind of keep at that next level closer and closer to their male counterparts. And I think that when I kind of realized, Oh, there is some connection here in the strength training part. Like that's, that's when it finally kind of connected, like, wait right. a second, they're doing all this time, you know, spending all this time building muscle and already naturally with their testosterone levels are building more muscle. And we're just not, you know, doing mm. those activities to enhance that as well for ourselves. And so I think realizing that was like, wait a second, wait a yeah. second. That's really interesting. And so with the, with the research that you're doing now at AUT, I mean, obviously you probably can't go into a huge amount of details of, of, you know, what you're looking to, to study, um, for your PhD, but is, you know, is there, is there anything that you can let the listeners know and, and what you're looking to understand through your current research? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know if there's anything that I shouldn't talk about. I will okay. gladly talk about anything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. So, so I went into AUT with this concept of looking specifically at um, menstrual cycle phase-based resistance training, you know, trying to make programming that lines up with someone's menstrual cycle in specific phases. And so that was, that was what I was kind of like super set on when I started the program and what I was looking at. And what I kind of ended up going down was realizing that one, just the menstrual cycle was way complicated, which is like, you know, I knew it was going to be complicated, but I was like, Oh, this is really complicated. <laughs> so I, you know, it's a, the classic, like, you know, the more you learn about something, the more you realize you don't know type of yeah, thing. And totally. so kind of going down that route and then realizing like, essentially it's kind of like I went in with this really focused and then realized I needed to kind of zoom out and look at the whole picture more. And I realized that there was just a lot of other things that needed to be considered before one could even dive into the idea of the phase-based training. So for example, with like, what is a regular menstrual cycle? What is cycle regularity? What is regular in athletes? Is that the same as what's regular in non-athletic populations? And once I kind of was starting to look into all this, I realized, oh, I feel like what needs to be established is more what is what is regular and what's not. And so that's kind of what some of my focus has been is actually trying to look at especially resistance trained but athletic female populations just what is the normal in this population what is seen often what's not you know use of uh, hormonal contraceptives you know what the what percent of the population is using that what percent have some sort of cycle irregularity and so for me that's kind of actually been some of the focus of my research is just looking at you know in in the population who participates in resistance training what is just kind of our regular baseline because we need that to be able to establish how to build programming for it. 
Because otherwise, it's like you're trying to build programming for something you don't even know what it really is. Mm. So mm. that's kind of become the focus of my research. And then I also started to realize after I did this survey of 900 participants um, asking just a bunch of questions um, about menstrual cycle and experiences and lived experiences and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I got this really big kind of like flag put in front of me after looking at a lot of the survey responses that a lot of the, a lot of the kind of side that I hadn't even really thought about was the psychological aspect. So specifically things like body image and how that has an effect on someone's menstrual cycle. And so that's kind of what's directed me into this last, this next phase of my research, which is specifically um, looking at the psychological components of what are the effects of the menstrual cycle and how can potentially a psychological intervention help someone with any sort of menstrual cycle symptoms or irregularity. Wow, really interesting stuff. So, I, I guess, um, what is the the current state of the literature on this kind of area that you're looking into? Is there a lot of you know studies that have already been done specifically looking at you know menstrual cycle and and training within those different phases um, and how it relates to to strength and hypertrophy? And I guess, why do you think? this kind of research that you're looking into doing is, is really important. Um, wait, sorry. <laughs> the connection froze for a second there. Can, oh, no, that's cool. Can so, you say so, that question one more time? Yeah, totally. So the question was basically what's the current state of the literature on research around, uh, you know, the current, the, the, sorry, the, the evidence that you're, or the research that you're looking into doing around, you know, training within different phases of the menstrual cycle um and and how that relates to strength and, and muscle mass like what is the current state of the literature on that and then why is i guess you looking into this 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 uh research really important do you think yeah okay so in the current information that's out there as far as menstrual cycle phase-based training it's very small i mean no surprise you know that's not like on the top of everyone's research list before mm. now maybe it is but um <laughs> So there's four studies that I'm aware of that are out there that have looked at this very specific area, and three of them found a significant difference from um, menstrual cycle phase-based training. But the big caveat here is that they were very, very kind of laboratory-type studies where they're doing unilateral training, so training one leg differently from the other leg, which I can assume that a vast majority of the population is not trying to train one leg separately from the other leg yeah. <laughs> in most strength training um, settings. And then the other studies was looking at unilateral with arms. Um, so that's all three of the studies we're looking at that way. There's been no study that's been done with a population of um, people with regular menstrual cycles doing what I would call a regular strength training program, some sort of full body, some sort of just anything that you would think of as a normal strength training program. And so I think that's why it's quite hard to draw any sort of conclusions with those studies is like they were super, it was a super cool idea, super novel. And I think those researchers that did that, it was awesome what they did, but I think it's, it's so preliminary. It's hard to say, Oh, for sure. This will work for everyone. It's just mm. so, so early. I mean, to, it's like one factor with that is that, you know, they, they studied a population that had, had never strength trained before. That's fine. You know, maybe not super applicable to everyone. But the thing that I think is challenging is to think about if you get a group of, you know, like say 10 women, the idea that all 10 of them will have a regular menstrual cycle that you could program to is very unlikely. So most of the time in most, you know, surveys and stuff that are out there, about 50% of females are using some form of hormonal contraceptive. Okay. So that 50% chunk has a totally different menstrual cycle than the other 50%, right? And so when we're talking about this phase-based training, we're talking about those within natural menstrual cycle, not ones that are using hormonal contraceptives because the hormonal contraceptives totally changes any of these hormonal effects that we're supposedly programming for, right? Because if the whole reason mm. why we're changing the programming is for hormones, then we need to think about, okay, what is the actual hormonal environment that someone's experiencing? So 
hormonal contraceptives would give someone basically a pretty steady level of similar hormones across their cycle as opposed to natural cycle, which ebbs and flows quite a bit more um, in hormones. So if we're thinking about making this programming for the natural menstrual cycle, we probably should take out the 50% that are using hormonal contraceptives. Okay, cool. So now, you know, out of our group of 10, we're down to five. Great. Out of (laughs) that group, the likelihood that all five of them have a regular menstrual cycle, so meaning that it kind of meets all the hormonal criteria, this create the same um, length day of days, you know, the same length of each phase and everything, it's quite small, most likely somewhere, again, depending on the group and depending on the individuals, somewhere between 10 to maybe 15 or 20% are going to have some sort of cycle irregularity. So whether that's like endometriosis, amenorrhea, PCOS, any of those conditions that cause someone's cycle to be different are, again, going to have a very different hormonal um, environment that they're experiencing. And therefore, again, if we're making the programming for those specific types of hormonal changes, we need to take that into account. So let's say that maybe one of our group of five now is gone. Now we're making programming for four women out of what was originally 10. Mm. Is that (laughs) really all that logical then that we're going to create, you know, a separate program just for those four and then the other six, I don't know, we'll just do something else for them, you know? And so it's just kind of we're left in a situation where it's like we, again, it's more questions than answers. You know, we've got like basically this little bit of an idea, this little kind of like, you know, carrot to grab onto, but we don't have any great evidence to say, oh, and this is what, how to actually use it. This is how to actually build this or to actually apply this any sort of setting. Yeah. And so I guess that comes back to like the, the majority of, of, females who have taken up strength training you know recently it's just generally hey we'll just do what the guys do and maybe we'll you know we'll change a few exercises to target specific muscle groups that maybe females want to uh, improve more than guys but you know generally the the phasic structure of the training will be very similar so i guess for the listeners i think this will be really helpful for a lot of guys listening as well just because they don't just don't have the education and and this aspect and i think you know it should be something that's more talked about specifically for guys so they can understand more what's going on with you know the ladies around them and their partners and things like this as opposed to you know having this kind of this you know almost veil over the whole thing and and you know keeping it separate from from guys knowledge is outlining what an average cycle actually looks like and you know what the different phases of a cycle is um and how they differ from each other and i guess how they differ and and what an individual is is feeling during those times um due to those differences in um ebbs and flows of those hormones Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree. I think that, uh, menstrual cycle education should be across the board. There should be no, you know, male or female specific education on this one. And one thing that does sometimes surprise me is that there's actually a lot of males sometimes who have gone like state coaches or, you know, who've worked with different athletes that go through wanting to learn a lot more about this, which I think is awesome. And then surprisingly, a lot of women who have just somehow missed getting that knowledge, you know, actually themselves haven't learned that much about it either. So, yeah. um, yeah, I sometimes find it interesting when talking to a group to assume, Oh, you know, the women will know about this and the men not. And sometimes you got kind of a, a switch back <laughs> yeah. and forth there. So wow. yeah, yeah. Good. I think this should, yeah, totally be a, an all, all, you know, all people can be included on these sort of conversations for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the regular menstrual cycle, um, we have our, our textbook example as everyone calls it, which, um, is not, I would, I would say more people don't have this type of cycle than people who do, but overall, um, <laughs> our average textbook cycle would be a 28 day cycle. So that from the first day that the period starts, um, to the last day before the next period is 28 days in total length. And again, the probably more women don't have this than do, but this is what right. we consider the regular average is 28 days in length with ovulation someplace around the middle. Again, the textbook would say day 14 ovulation can be anywhere from like day seven to day 21, uh, which is why sometimes that can be a little confusing for people. Mm. But 
Um, yeah, so it's our ovulation there in the middle. And so if you think about this as like a, a graph going across, so we start, you know, on the on the left side with day one of the period and then day 28 on the other side. Um, the first half is our follicular phase. It's just a name for it, just when the follicles, the follicle is developing. Um, and then our second half is the luteal phase. And so there's there's different names for subsections within each phases, but just to keep it, you know, simple and clean, we'll just go follicular phase and luteal phase. And so we basically have early follicular is uh, the beginning of the period. Then we have late follicular, uh, which is the lead up to ovulation, ovulation. And then we have the early luteal, which is right after ovulation. And then the late luteal, which is what we would call like PMS or that premenstrual time um, is where that would happen um, is that late luteal phase. So Mm. the big difference is, is that in the follicular phase, estrogen is the dominant hormone. So that's the, the rise of estrogen. Um, it makes these, you know, beautiful kind of curving, undulated curves on the on our printed cycle here. Um, and so that's in the follicular phase. And then at ovulation, we get a nice little peak of, of estrogen, goes back down. Of course, there's other um, hormones that are peaking there as well. And then um, progesterone stays at kind of a nice lower state until ovulation where it starts to make its rise in the luteal phase. So the biggest difference is for when we're thinking about, say, like programming and hormones and stuff is just that follicular phase has estrogen is a dominant hormone and luteal phase has progesterone as a dominant hormone. Again, both phases all have other hormones, both hormones, et cetera, but that's kind of just the way we think about it a lot as far as the physiological impact of the hormones. So again, 28-day 28, 28 cycle, we got ovulation in the middle, dividing the estrogen-dominated phase and the progesterone-dominated phase. Okay, then (laughs) when you're talking about the effects and what's changing from one part of the cycle to the next, this is just so variable from person to person and from each cycle. So for one woman to compare one cycle to the next, there's going to be a huge amount of variation as well, which is, again, why it gets really complicated because you can't just Mm -hmm. say, well this person always gets this because they won't. (laughs) They'll get it sometimes and maybe not always. But um so the estrogen dominance in that follicular phase seems to um, be this time where when we're looking at this in the studies is the time where the body's potentially like maybe we don't know for sure able to um, handle a little higher training load or a little bit more intensity or recover better or something like that. It's like, there's just a lot of little pieces of data that we have there. Um, And then during the progesterone dominated phase, that seems to go down a little bit with the increase in progesterone. Again, though, it's like, we don't know this for sure. This is again, just when we're looking at these phase-based studies, what they see, um, there's some specific physiological markers that change. So for example, naturally the um the basal body temperature rises after ovulation from progesterone so progesterone does increase the metabolic rate of the body increases the temperature of the body um so we see the, so that's how like using um temperature to monitor ovulation and stuff works is that we're looking for that rise in temperature that's coming from progesterone in the luteal phase, um, which does have a little bit of effect in some, if someone to say is doing, um, you know, endurance training outside in the heat or something, they may notice that increase, um, in body temperature or it less of an ability to cool the body. But again, not everyone will notice that. But mm-hmm. when we look at studies and data, that is something that is pretty consistent across the board that most women will experience. Um, we'll also see changes like, um, changes in resting heart rate. So resting heart rate goes up a little bit during, uh, when the progesterone is higher, um, we also see little, these little changes in, um, um, substrate metabolism. So the utilization of carbs versus fat, but again, it's like, these are all just like little things that when we see average, it's like, oh yeah, that does seem to be a pattern. But I would, I would say that for each individual, this probably varies a ton. It's probably mm. very different about how much this, this is changing, but 
So from these changes in hormones and these physiological changes, some people will experience um, differing symptoms. So some people find that during high level, their higher level of estrogen time that they feel really good, they have high energy, they're able to do a lot more, and that during the progesterone height, they don't feel that as much. They feel kind of more flat. They feel more tired. Um, they need to sleep more. They feel like they need to eat more and stuff like that. Again, some people might feel the reverse. Some people mm. might not even feel that difference. So um, when we're thinking about other, like those stereotypical sort of like um, – changes like the emotional side, you know, mood swings, you know, being overly irritable and things like that. That's typically seen in the luteal phase. So in that second half of the cycle with that rise and fall in progesterone. But again, that's just, it's just not always that consistent. You know, people mm. can be angry and moody at any time in their cycle. You know, it doesn't need to be a specific time. Um, but again, some people may really notice that and notice that experience as well. Yeah, I, I love all of that. And I think, you know, we have to be so careful, I guess, with a, with a topic like this that starts to gain more traction in the fitness industry and it starts to become a bit of a hot topic. It's very easy for people to start throwing out like blanket statements, black and white statements around, um, you know, how the menstrual cycle does affect uh, an individual. And I think so much of the time, it just leaves out so much of the nuance that's in this topic. Uh, Because like you've been repeating, it's just there's so much variability between individuals that it's very hard to just say, oh, you know, all females should, uh, you know, feel more energetic in the follicular phase. Or all females will experience huge amount of cravings um, during PMS or whatever it may be. I think there's just so much, yeah, variability there. And as soon as you start putting out these black and white statements, um, it's, you know, I guess there's this whole thing of like the psychological aspect of if I hear that I'm going to be more lethargic in the luteal phase, then maybe I will just be more lethargic, you know, like, I guess that like placebo effect, I guess it would be right. Is like, you, you know, you start to accept that for yourself as opposed to actually beginning to tune into your own body and, and see what you're actually feeling and, and understand how it's affecting you. And I guess not take some kind of, um, black and white rule as the be all and end all for how you're going to experience your menstrual cycle. So, I guess the the big thing I want to I, I guess I want to take away from a discussion on this is because we've got all these little snippets from you know different different bits of data, different research. What is I guess from your perspective now the practical implications of those different phases of the cycle and how that's going to affect somebody's training in the gym and potentially how it's going to affect their uh, response to that training, you know, via, um, you know, muscle protein synthesis and, and, and hypertrophy and, and strength gain. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just touch on what you were saying there with that placebo effect. That is something that I am like always so, um, I'm like concerned about in some ways that, yeah, if we make these blanket statements as like, you will feel like this at this time at this day, it's like, wow, no surprise. I feel like this, you know? And I just, I think that I, I get really overly concerned that when, especially like, yeah, the, the, the fit, fitness industry, whoever that, whoever that is and wherever they are and stuff, <laughs> but like, you know, when they, when they grab onto this concept of like, you, like that this, this is what's going to make this big difference in your life. You know, you, you may have everything else perfect in your life, but it's not yet until you have this one thing and stuff. Mm. And I feel like this, this concept of like, you're not good enough until you do this thing, which I feel like right now is starting to be this idea with like menstrual cycle based training or something that it's like, you're totally messing up if you don't do this one thing. I feel like that's like a YouTube tagline of a lot of videos, like stop doing back squats because of this (laughs) one thing, never do, you know, or like these big claims that everything is so bad if you're not doing this one Mm. thing. And I, and I feel like that could be the same with menstrual cycle phases or this idea of like, Oh, if you're, you know, if you trained hard, on this day in your luteal phase you're done you know like your your arm's gonna fall off or something it's gonna go (laughs) terribly and 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 yeah I get really nervous with what sort of are we really helping anyone are we really helping anyone with those with that information with those statements rather than telling someone hey keep training if you don't feel good Mm -hmm. don't train 
you know, like it's just like the yeah. super, like, I think it, it's, it's a cool opportunity for people to become much more introspective rather than looking outside mm. for how should I feel? How should I train? How should I, you know, plan my life and stuff? And instead think, how do I feel? How mm. does this make me feel? How did I feel after that? And use that information in your own personal data, because all these people who are making, you know, claims or statements and stuff have literally no idea how you feel. You know, they have mm. literally no concept over what is going on inside your body. The only person who does know that is, is you. And so I think it's, it's such an important opportunity, um, especially for women to kind of take back their health into their own hands rather than thinking it's something that they need to go elsewhere, they need to search elsewhere for, um, and to, you know, trust these opinions of these, you know, people who probably have fairly limited knowledge mm. <laughs> in the area who are telling them, you know, oh, you have to train this way. Um, so, yeah, so I did a really good job talking around that, and now I forgot what your original question was. No, that, this, this, no I love that discussion so much. And, and, you know, I think it's with my clients as well. I, you know, when working with females, I don't, tend to program any differently for their phases because I'm like, okay, cool. If if you're going to be feeling really rubbish for this particular week or whatever it may be, you're going to let me know and your client check in anyway. And then I can adjust your training as per necessary based off your feelings. But I'm not going to put this idea in your head of like, okay, now it's like week four. Um, so we're going to really reduce volume here because, you know, you're in your luteal phase and, you know, and it's kind of just giving them this idea of like, oh, you're going to have a really shit week. And it's like, no, I actually <laughs> right? prefer you just to, I prefer you just to train. Week. <laughs> yeah, I prefer you just to train as per normal. And then, yeah, if, if we give you the autonomy to say, hey, look, if you're feeling really rubbish at any period during this training cycle, then yeah, let's take a either a low volume session or a low volume week, whatever it may be, and give you that flexibility. But I don't want to, you know, be um, the dictator here and say, "Hey, look, this is what we're going to do, um, and we're going to train purely based off the menstrual cycle." So I guess I want to I want to hand that over to you, Kim, and say, what what is the practical implications that you've now come to the conclusion of like based off what you've read around the different phases of the cycle and how that relates to strength and hypertrophy right now i remember your question yep it's all coming back <laughs> um yeah no i think that's a really uh, really interesting topic so um my primary supervisor who's uh you know just been fantastic throughout this journey eric helms um he had when we first met, you know, to talk about my, my project and talk about this menstrual phase based training and stuff, he said something that I thought was really smart. That was, you know, that obviously, you know, he's been a coach for a long time and has been aware of this type of programming. And he goes, I don't use this, you know, this isn't something I do. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's an interesting point. And I, I would say I'm kind of at the same point to, um, mm. as a, as a trainer and even for myself, where I think that we, we have a lot of interesting data in this and I think it's super cool. Like, you know, tracking, you know, the heart rate across the menstrual cycle. I mean, that's literally what I'm doing in one of my studies. You know, I think it's really interesting, but I don't know that we can do that much with it yet. I don't know yes. that it's that necessarily applicable because again, because there's so many differences from female to female as to whether or not this research would even apply to them. You know, again, we had the, you know, the six women versus the four, you know, the hormonal contraceptives and irregular cycles, a lot of this wouldn't even apply to. And then we have, you know, the four at the regular cycle that this is supposedly applying to, again, have so many variations within themselves, because even from woman to woman, in a fairly similar setting, their progesterone levels, for example, might be very different even though they both have regular cycles. And so I think that when we look at these averages, you know, say, oh, on average, we see this, you know, increase in heart rate, we see this change in, in substrate metabolism that's noteworthy or something. It's really an average. It's really not that individual person who experienced that. This was just what we showed as a group. And so I feel the same way with the application of that with training is that, this was an average, you know, that we saw for this group of, of women who hadn't, didn't have training experience. And so I think it, it's hard to actually apply that to that much. Mm. What I personally do, you know, for myself and for my female clients is just go off of feel, you know, just like what you were saying, where it's, it's less about like, Oh yeah, we have, we have hit week two. We were ovulating. This is what you're going to be experiencing, you know, and stuff because 
one, actually knowing when someone's ovulating is quite difficult unless you're actively monitoring this, you know, with like pee strips or a blood test, which most of us are not doing with our athletes at any way or any level. So I think it's just really hard to even know exactly what phase someone might be in at varying times. Um, and then also, yeah, just it seems like going off feel works all right. <laughs> going yeah. off of that, you know, it's like we haven't massively messed up doing that with people. And we just don't know exactly how to apply this phase-based training yet. So I, I think that there's there's just a lot more, there's a lot more to figure out. There's just a lot more to figure out before we can actually truly utilize it. Are, are there any like common, uh, I guess, common symptoms or, or things that ladies would experience within those different cycles in regards to their training? Like, um, you know, maybe it's like recovery or it's, or maybe they feel stronger or is there any like common symptoms that we do see um, across the board? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in, in the survey that I, I did a few months ago, um, I, it was really fun actually being able to read through some of the responses and everything. And, you know, again, there's huge variation, but, um, one of the ones that was kind of fun, people could write in their free responses. And one thing that came up so often was bloating and belts, the concept of, so in, in, with the increase in progesterone for most women, that would be the time of increasing bloating. And normally that'll kind of last through the beginning of their period. Um, because that, that increase is, is um, causing, you know, more water retention, et cetera. And so this bloating sensation that is just so common, it's just so common and so normal. And I think it's a hard one for a lot of women because we've been, you know, just pressed into our heads over and over again about the, you know, like you have to have a flat stomach, you have to have these abs, you have to have this, this certain body type and stuff that is so far from what is natural for women. Mm. (laughs) Just like so far, it's just like bloating is so normal and so common. And you know, just happens with having a healthy body, you know, it's like having a healthy body is going to have some of these sort of symptoms. And so this, um, common thread of bloating and needing to either not being able to use your weightlifting belt, having to have a different weightlifting belt, you know, for the bloating times, like all that sort of thing. Um, I thought that was just interesting how much of a resonating message that was (laughs) in that group of 900 women. Um, the other one, um, that was quite common, uh, food cravings. That one's pretty common. Um, I, which I, I think, you know, maybe has a little bit to do with that changes in the fact that the body needs a little bit more calories during, because of the increase in metabolism with progesterone. So it just makes sense. Like your body's like, we need this again, mm-hmm. your healthy body is trying to survive. It's trying to tell you like, Hey, you need to eat a little bit more, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more of this stuff that seems really good, you know? And so yeah. the food craving is super common. Um, and then, uh, onset or the day before, uh, menstruating for most women, uh, cramps are just super common. And in my survey, I've seen like 90%, um, experience menstrual cramps. So it is just very, very common. Um, and for some that does include, um, not only kind of in the lower abdominal area, but also in the low back. So just this kind of circulating area, um, Mm. cramps. And I'd say the next ones after that were things like acne. Um, let's see the food cravings, the, um, mood swings, things like that. But those are a little bit lower actually on the commonality. The the ones that Mm. were just the the most common was the, the bloating, the, (laughs) the, um, cramps and the just kind of general pain headaches. That's another one. Is that specifically those symptoms? Are they specifically feeling those in like the PMS phase, I guess. And that's right at the end of the luteal phase. Am I correct? Yeah, so I I'd say anywhere from the the end of the luteal phase into the beginning of menstruating. So it's that kind of window of in our 28-day cycle from about day 25 or so into day 1 or 2 somewhere in there. And um yeah, some women again notice it quite a bit more in the luteal phase with that increase in progesterone and some notice it more at the end of the luteal phase with the decrease in progesterone. Mm. That's really interesting. So I guess from a a training perspective, 
Is there anything that you, like like you said, you don't really adjust too much for yourself. Have you noticed anything like anecdotally for yourself or even through like the survey you've done or, or, or clients that you've worked with where you've seen drastic changes in performance based on those different phases? Like I know that there are some, you know, people are propon- like some proponents of, 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 I guess, phasic structure training um, for the menstrual cycle that would state that, you know, the – you know, they, the best time to test a 1RM, for example, would be in the follicular phase or, you know, and then you might have a deload during your luteal phase. Like, is have you experienced any of that yourself in terms of like the performance side of things? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so yeah, anecdotally, I think it, it is a great side of this. So when we're looking at the studies on phase-based training and the proponents of this and everything, they really um, emphasize this concept of do all your heavy, hard work in your follicular phase. Like, oh, cool. Yeah, sounds good. On paper, makes sense. You know, when we look yeah. at these numbers and graphs, yeah, makes sense. Awesome. Practically speaking, the follicular phase starts on the first day of a woman's period. Ask a vast majority of women, how ready are you to train hard today? Most of them are going to be like, no, thank you. (laughs) That is not my choice. And even for the first like three or four days after, like vast majority of women I've worked with myself, most, most of the people, even if you bring up this concept to them, it becomes almost offensive. You know, the idea that like, that's your best time to go hard and, and, you know, do the best you can, you know, just kind of like, I'm doing the best I can to just exist right now to just stand upright, you know? And so the idea that that should be the hardest part of training, I think is sometimes a tough pill to swallow because you're like, I felt fine, say, for example, in your luteal phase when you're supposed to be deloading, and then you feel right. terrible at the beginning of your follicular phase. And you're like, why would I do this? You're like, mm-hmm. why is this a good idea? Why, you know? And so I think that that can be really challenging um, to try and convince people to do <laughs> when you're like, yeah, but on the, on the textbook, you should be feeling great right now. You're so strong and you know, you're at your best. And you're like, I'm, I'm not, this is, yeah. this yeah. is not a good time. No, that's great. Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. Um, I guess there's a couple of more things I wanted to cover with you, Kim. And one of them is, um, potential downsides or like from your own knowledge or reading are there any potential downsides of not having a regular menstrual cycle like for someone who is using hormonal contraception and you know they're not having those regular um, changes in hormonal levels or potentially someone who has irregular periods or um, you know relative energy deficiency where they're you know not actually seeing a a regular menstrual cycle um, you know, like a menorrhea or something like that. Are they downsized to someone not actually experiencing that? I guess there's probably a lot of people who um, would, you know, claim that going like natural is best. And, you know, if you're not having a menstrual cycle, then, you know, you're not allowing your body to do its natural thing and, and whatever arguments they have in regards to that. So have you seen any like negative side effects or downsides to not actually having that regular cycle? Yeah. Okay. So I'd say there's, uh, two things that pop into my mind with uh, with that question about not having a regular cycle. So the first thing would be, of course, is, is why the person not having a regular cycle. If it's if it's due to amenorrhea, primary or secondary, meaning the person either never got their period or they have not experienced a period for the past few few months, um, or if it's for hormonal contraceptives, right? So the, that would be kind of two different situations. And so like someone who's experiencing um, amenorrhea that is not explained by other, you know, classic thing, pregnancy, breastfeeding, things like that, you know, that all makes sense why that's happening. But um, where it's, it's unexplained, there's not not a specific reason. Um, one thing that is seen oftentimes in athletes is that it's because they're um, not fueling sufficiently. They're not eating enough for whatever reason, what it, it is from an eating disorder or not, you know, can just happen, um, especially with intense training. And so with that type of amenorrhea, um, there is concern if someone continues down that path that there are long-term health consequences, which is where we come out, you know, with the um, Red S research or female athlete triad um, and the concerns with that. And so that goes back to our hormonal contraceptive question, which is if someone is taking hormonal contraceptives, um, one one of the primary concerns with that is that 
if someone is at risk for potentially having amenorrhea, we don't know that if they're taking a hormonal contraceptive. So if someone is on a hormonal contraceptive, that essentially will mask the mm. fact that the body's not producing enough of its own natural hormones. And so it's it's that's kind of one of the more tricky sides with it where it's sometimes seen as like, well, they're still getting hormones because they're taking them exogenously. Um, but we don't know whether or not they maybe are at risk for um, amenorrhea or if they're experiencing that because they'll still have a withdrawal bleed when they're not taking the, the birth control pills or whatever method they're using. Um, and so that would be the concern again, because when someone is in a situation where they're not in taking sufficient calories, um, they're working out super, super hard, training really intensely and stuff. Um, we run into the risk of potentially, um, lower bone density from, um, the lack of, um, estrogen, which would be stimulating the bone growth normally, since we don't have that circulating, then we run into that concern, um, and potentially increase risk for injury as well. It just makes sense too, you know, if the body's working really, really hard and not getting the calories it needs to repair itself, yeah, we're, we're probably going to run into problems. That's not going to be great. So hormonal contraceptives kind of cover that. And so someone can't necessarily, you know, I mean, like covered like a blanket, like you can't see it. And so you don't right. see that problem. Um, so that's where that concern comes from. The, the secondary part to that is whether or not hormonal contraceptives will like affect someone's performance or affect their ability to actually, um, you know, perform at their best and things like that. And I would say that we're still really a long ways from being able to make a good statement about that research wise. Mm. There has been some studies that come out that have shown a small percentage difference in those who were taking hormonal contraceptives versus those who weren't uh, and favoring the natural menstrual cycle over hormonal contraceptives. But the big caveat with that is of course, why is someone taking hormonal contraceptives? You know, are they taking it specifically to prevent pregnancy or are they taking it maybe to treat symptoms? And so if you're to take someone who, um, and I have a really good friend um, who growing up, she gets, you know, very, very severe um, menstrual cycle symptoms to the point where she passes out. And that actually wow. became a problem, you know, in sports. It's not great to just black out suddenly, you know, <laughs> at an unpredictable time because you don't realize your period is about to start. So wow. would someone who has very extreme symptoms perform better with or without the hormonal contraceptives well i think we need to look at addressing the symptoms and most likely someone with extreme symptoms will perform better with the hormonal contraceptives whether or not the hormonal contraceptives may have this minute percentage change in their ability to perform right it's outweighed by the benefit of the fact that their symptoms maybe are so much that they can't perform well so i think that it's always hard when we make this quick rush to judge like oh there was a two percent difference in that group that used hormonal contraceptives and they're two percent less strong don't use them and it's like well you know what makes you way less strong um giving birth you know that will that will also slow you down as well so i yeah. think that like um I think that we need to think about why someone is taking these and if they're in a position where they, you know, yeah, it's like getting pregnant and recovering from that as an athlete is obviously an amazing feat. And, you know, giving birth is, is strength in all sorts of other ways. It's incredibly, you know, impressive, but are they going to be able to perform at this elite level athletically immediately after? Probably not. And so the hormonal contraceptives yeah. probably would help them if they're in that phase of life where they're more focused on competing um, athletically. I think that also, um, again, yeah, just thinking about the whole picture of the person is what's really important here. Again, rather than looking at, you know, numbers on a graph and looking at, oh, well, you know, their performance will be slightly hampered and stuff. Um, and then mm. I think the other hard thing too to compare is like if you were to take a person and say, okay, well, let's look at you uh, yourself compared to you yourself at another time, you know, we're using hormonal contraceptives versus not. The fact that there's such a big gap of time that ends up having to pass to be in one phase versus the other phase to so say you didn't use contraceptives and then you did at one time and then go back to it. That's probably multiple years between that. It's so hard to really compare and say, Oh, this was a big difference or this wasn't. There's so many other life factors that may come into play there. 
Yeah, that's a great answer, Kim. And I think so much of this is is coming back to, I guess, the key takeaway of 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 each individual, of each woman being being more aware of their own experience and you know, kind of having that introspective awareness of being able to come back and think a little more um yeah, a little more um intently about how they're experiencing their menstrual cycle and how that's going to affect their training and their recovery. And I guess a question for you to finish up here, Kim, is like what would be um some strategies, some best strategies for ladies to become more aware of their menstrual cycle and how they respond and how it affects their performance. Is there certain things that they can track or is there apps they can use or is it just the case of actually just waking up in each, each day and going, Hey, how am I feeling? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think the yeah, first piece of advice is definitely, you know, track your menstrual cycle, like whether it's on an app or whether it's just in a note or, you know, piece of paper and stuff. Um, I, I don't think that there's any like magical, you know, this is the best way to track it or this is, you know, I, I think that track as many points that are of interest to you. So I'd say um, your perception of your recovery, your perception of your exertion, things like that, you know, using like RPE um, can be useful. Uh, again, it just depends on how detailed you're interested in looking at it. But it's just it's it's just about like every day for more than one cycle trying to track this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. You know, this is what's going on. And then be able to look at that data yourself um, and see, was there a pattern? Was there something that was going on? Mm -hmm. I think it's also important though, to just keep other things in mind. You know, we don't exist in these little perfect bubbles of menstrual cycle calendars, you know, and the fact that there's different life stress, there's different work stress, social things, things like that, that come into play, you know, changes in diet, changes in other aspects of life that may also compound some of these issues that women are experiencing, especially like stress is going to be have a huge factor on someone's menstrual cycle and the symptoms that they experience. People, when they're in higher stress times, are going to have way more exacerbated symptoms, most likely, because um, it's just, you know, it's just affecting you all overall in different ways. Uh, so just keep that in mind, too, when you're tracking your menstrual cycle is just are there other external factors that are maybe really affecting you right now, you know, because we could have someone keep this, you know, amazing uh, menstrual cycle diary, but they are doing so many other things and they're, you know, so involved in other things or completely changing their diet or experiencing an illness or all these other things. And that's like, well, that that's maybe taking precedence over whatever is happening with your hormonal environment. But anyway, so um, I would really recommend though, for women to try to, to um, track for at least three cycles to see any mm. major patterns or anything like that. Um, taking notes each day, you know, noting, um, there, there are a lot of things that you, you can use to monitor what phase you're in yourself. And it just depends on what you're comfortable with and what you're interested in. Um, things like monitoring cervical fluid, basal body temperature, um, things like that can be, can be really useful for some women to figure out where they are in their phase. Um, but really even just tracking, you know, like when you got your period, how you're feeling for the next days after until the next immediate period, just things like that. It can be, it can be yeah. as simple or as complicated as someone wants it to be, but looking over at that, that's where you're really going to be able to find, I think the information that's going to be most useful for you as an individual is looking at your own data and your own information. That's awesome. So I guess to finish up here, Kim, um, I'd love to you know, give you the floor and just see if there was anything that we potentially missed that you'd like to cover or you think that, you know, is really important for both ladies and men to know or understand. Um, if not, then we can, we can wrap this one up. Yeah, let's see. Ooh, things I want the world to know right now. <laughs> I mean, luckily, I, I feel like I got to say some of my, my main points, you know, which cool. is, again, that I just think that it's it's so important for women to kind of take, you know, to to be the judges of themselves, to be their, you know, the, the decision makers of how they feel, what they want to do training-wise and stuff. And, and I think for, um, you know, men as well, to just also just for everyone to understand that it's like the menstrual cycle is complicated and nuanced and there's a lot of things going on. But I also think, we shouldn't put it 
on the special pedestal. You know, it's not the only thing that's going on. That's not the only thing that's existing for women is their menstrual cycle. There's, Mm. um, you know, luckily we're fairly complicated creatures with a lot of other, you know, biological systems and varying things going on. And so um, just to not see that isolated in a box or not put that as the, the, the only thing to blame, you know, or that that's the, let's point all fingers, you know, if you're not feeling good, it, oh, it must be your menstrual cycle. It's like, well, how'd you sleep? How'd you eat? What, how stressed are you? What's going on? You know, there, that there are a lot of other factors and that our menstrual cycle, although, you know, obviously I seem to think it's quite interesting, is not the only factor and is not the yeah. only thing to consider. That's awesome, Kim. So, uh, I'd love for you to let the the listeners know where they can find you, more information about you, um, and also let us know what you've got going on for the rest of the year and into 2022. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Let's see. So where people can find me and stuff. I'm not, I'm not great at at being a particularly public person with lots of social media or anything. I have an Instagram account, you know, if anyone wants to follow me, um, when I do recruit for things, I do post it on my Instagram. Um, and that's just my full name. It's Kimberly Santa Barbara. It's pretty easy. Um, and let's see what I'm doing next. So yeah, research wise, um, I'm getting to do these kind of fun monitoring studies where um, I will be recruiting for more women. So those who are interested, uh, where I'm looking at resistance trained women who um, are interested in basically tracking their own cycle. So everything I was just talking about, you get to do as part of a study uh, and track, you know, all these different symptoms as well. And then with a a fun, um, I I think it's fun, psychological intervention, um, which is going to involve uh, mindfulness. Awesome. That's great. Well, Kim, thanks so much for for giving your time up and taking this deep dive with us. It's been super insightful for me and I'm sure the listeners, both male and female, will take a lot from this one and, and be able to implement it into their own training and, and into their you know own, own monthly cycles and kind of get a little bit better of an understanding of you know, how their body works and how it affects um, themselves physically, but also you know psychologically as well. So I really appreciate you giving your time here and I'm sure the listeners are going to love it. Great. Thank you so much. There we have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. As I said at the start of the episode, this is something that needs to be shared around. More people need to be discussing this. And particularly, guys need to understand a little more about the menstrual cycle, how it influences uh, their partners, their friends, their family members' lives, and especially for coaches, learning how it affects people's training. And I think this was a great sort of overview and a bit of a deep dive into all of that. So hopefully you took some good practical takeaways and can start implementing that. If you want to get in touch with me, of course, hit me up on Instagram. That's the best place to find me. Feel free to share the episode on your stories there and I will share it around as well. And more people can get a hold of this information that way. And in the next few months, the Vegan Body Club, which is the online community facet of Vegan Body Coach, will be launching. So that'll be a place for listeners, followers on Instagram, friends online and offline to get together in a place that is away from Facebook, away from Instagram, um, and full of like-minded individuals, and we can share our journeys together. So keep an eye out for that one coming in the next few months. I'm going to leave it there. Be sure to let me know if you want to hear any particular topics, conversations, guests on this podcast, always up for uh, suggestions, advice, recommendations. Um, We've got a couple good podcasts to come to you before the end of the year. So with that, wherever you are in the world, I hope you are safe. I hope you're able to get some form of training in. If it's not in the gym, maybe it's just getting outside for a walk, doing some home workouts, anything just to keep your body moving and progressing towards your individual goals. Go eat up, go lift up, and get some more plants. Oh, 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 oh,